Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. C.S. Lewis said, The notion that everyone would like Christianity to be true, and therefore all atheists are brave men who have accepted the defeat of all their deepest desires, is simply impudent nonsense. Pretty bold. Pretty bold words there from C.S. Lewis, but that's why we love him. And welcome in. This is Religionless Christianity. Uh, the show where, you know, every week we do our best to help Christians navigate this secular and religionless world that we find ourselves in. And I'm your host, Spencer. This is my beautiful wife, Nikki. Hello. And if you're keeping track, the pillows keep getting higher and higher behind her. Um, pretty soon we'll just <laughs> replace her chair with a, what are those, like the giant... Uh, bean bag? Like a bean bag chair. <laughs> So does anybody podcast from a beanbag chair? Because it seems like it'd be pretty nice. We used to have some, but the kids destroyed them. Well, they got those giant beanbags now, <laughs> um, which would probably be pretty comfortable. So anywho, uh, today um, we're going to, as always, be looking at the news of the week. Um, really, we're going to be kind of sticking in the Christian lane today, not really delving too much in the secular world here. Um, although I guess when you're talking about American Christianity, the secular say, is just part of the. It is about secularism. <laughs> but there really weren't very many big stories. Um, if you're following football, Deshaun Watson got in a full 11-game suspension, you know, for being a pervert. I guess that's getting off light. But, uh, and Donald Trump, right, still in the news, if you care. Um, apparently, <laughs> You know, it is funny. I'll just touch on Donald Trump briefly here because it's so ridiculously comical. Um, you know, we know that the left in this country is largely, I mean, it's kind of an anti-Christ satanic party. Lying is just sort of what they do. Um, not to say Trump's at all, you know, the most truthful man, but, you know, they've been lying about Trump for four years. They get proven to be liars over and over again. And now this week, you know, like they raid his 
his home in Florida last week. And then the news that comes out is like, <laughs> they think he has like ultra top secret nuclear codes like in his home. And you're like, goodness gracious. And I like, they talked about the nuclear nonsense, his entire presidency. And I don't know who still gets like terrified about nuclear war like this is somehow the 1950s and the cold war is on any way they can spin it to make it fearful like as if anybody thinks that there's really a nation around the world that's just gonna launch <laughs> nukes and just think that's gonna work out well for us um <laughs> look anything's possible but i would tell you you can rest easy uh, and not be afraid of nuclear war very very unlikely in our world but not to mention, they're like, he's got nuclear codes as if, like, I don't know what people think about how nuclear weapons are launched, but you don't like text a number to like nuke now, text 75652 to nuke now, and then a missile launches. That's not the way it works. Um, well, so what codes does he have? I don't TV know. TV makes stuff It sound. doesn't make any sense. And then the idea, even that he would have these nuclear codes, like Donald Trump is a former president who has aspirations to be president again. So why would he take these nuclear codes and like, what is he going to do with them? Sell them on the black market? To who? All the countries that would buy them already have nukes, Russia, China. So who's he going to sell them to? And then secondly, he wants to be president again. Yeah. Why would he sell nukes to an enemy that he's going to have to be facing off with on the world stage? Not to mention he's a billionaire. So who's going to pay him money that makes a difference? It's all so absurd. But like Nikki said, whatever they can do to get you fearful. But, you know, I don't know what he had. We're still waiting for that to come out. But when you hear stuff this absurd, and this is what we've been trying to instill in you guys really since this show started. If they're talking, assume they're lying. They may ultimately stumble into the truth accidentally, but it's accidentally. So when you hear this stuff, oh, Trump's got nuclear codes, just assume they're lying and it makes you feel better and you're going to be right 99% of the time. So um, that's that. But um, yeah, so what we're going to really be talking about is more just from the Christian realm. We got two articles um kind of touching on stuff that popped up in the news in the christian realm this week and then we're going to be discussing new atheism as we kind of talked about last week mm -hmm. that's going to be sort of our bible topic but before we get to all of that honey is there anything you would like to say yeah we found out yesterday well i brought up last week about uh, my friend's daughter and she was just trying to get her daughter back and she did so things are seeming to go go well right now. Always good. Just feel better when the child is back with the parent that's loving. <laughs> so, yeah, we're glad that that went in their favor. So praise God. Yeah, um, for me, a prayer request. I will be doing the jail ministry um, solo for the next two weeks. So just pray for me that I can bring a good message to these guys. I think I know what I'm going to try to talk to them about. I think I want to, you know, really just dive into the gospel. I think it's what I'm going to do this week. So just going through the gospel. And then the following week, I'm going to talk about sort of assurance of salvation. I think is since I have two weeks, that's going to be what I try to focus on. So just pray 
you know, that this reaches. We have, you know, it is funny, the jail ministry, because you never know who's showing up. And, you know, these guys come from all walks of life. And um, every once in a while, people will just throw you some curveballs. And we had some last week. And I'll just put this out to you guys and see if you've ever heard of this. You know, we've got some smart people that listen to this show. And one of the guys brought up, um, you know, did we ever hear or how do we feel about the fact that Mary is the new Ark of the Covenant? She's the Ark replacement. So, you know, his point was the Ark was where sort of God's spirit was, you know, housed. That's where, you know, basically yeah, God's spirit was housed, right? And the Ark of the Covenant is what he was telling us. And that changed when Mary got pregnant with Jesus. God was in Mary, sort of an ark replacement. So yeah, but when Jesus was born, okay, listen, she's not an ark. We anymore. don't apply any sort of logic or reasoning to Mary. You just put out whatever bombastic statement you can, and you just roll with it. So yeah, I'd never heard of that before. Never heard it's of it before. Um, be curious if you guys had heard anything about that. And um, yeah, pretty interesting. That wasn't the only interesting thing, but. Just for the sake of time, we'll just move along. So pray for me there. And then also this week, I am going to be sort of guesting, being a guest on another fella's pot or like YouTube channel this week. Um, you still have to sort of finalize it. You guys may be familiar with him. I'm not terribly. His name is Tom Jump. Um, has a decent little audience there. And he sort of talks, sounds like he's an atheist, but he sort of just talks about religion and spirituality and all that sort of stuff so i think it's weird an atheist i don't know why he wants to talk to me but they reached out asked me if i'd come on so i said sure let's let's do it so um possibly this week i don't know when the show is going to air but um if it does air i'll let you guys know and if you care to watch it you can go watch it so that's all i ask for prayers this week so all right before we get to the news and everything, let me just make sure you guys please go and reach out to Cardinal, Cardinal Contingency Solutions. They are a partner that you need in this world that we live in with social media and cell phones and exploiters and um, nefarious actors that are abounding. You know, whatever your business, your ministry, whatever happens to be, um, you need, I think, it's important to have a little bit of training in your back pocket on how to handle um, these sort of professional exploiters and these professional agitators because, you know, our natural instinct is to lash out, is to try to prove ourselves right, use reason. I'm going to reason with them and they'll understand. No, they won't. They don't care. They're not trying to understand, right? They're trying to goad you into something. So I think it's a valuable skill to have and Cardinal is the best in the world at getting you trained up. So reach out to them and you will be happy. Also, um, we are proud members of the Christian podcast community. You guys know that. And let me see if I can find this show on here. I was just listening to a podcast today. Um, I don't think it was brand new, but it was a really good one. It was, yeah, right here, Doctrine Matters with Stephen Dew. And really good. They're fairly short, you know, about 25, 30 minute long episodes. And he was talking about 
Christianity and politics today, obviously something near and dear to our heart. Um, and he had just got done talking about Christians in government as well. So um, did kind of a little two-parter there and it was really good. So go look up Christian podcast community. We'll be there. A bunch of other folks will be there and your soul will be enriched. So, um, all right, here we go. Buckle up. You guys know what Buckle up and gird your loins. Gird your loins (laughs) and prepare as we get ready to take our weekly trek through the valley of the shadow of death to take a look at the news of the week. Um, And our first story here, honey, if you want to read this headline. It says, pastors identify modern day idols. Comfort tops the list. Yep. And then just read like these first two paragraphs here. Um, According to a study from Lifeway Research, more than half of U.S. Protestant pastors believe comfort, 67%, control or security, D6, money, 55, and approval, 51%, are idols that have significant influence on their congregations. When asked to choose the potential idol with the most sway over people in their churches, pastors again point to comfort, 30% and controller security, 20% above the others. Okay. Yeah. So I think it was just that first paragraph or that second paragraph there. But um, the only point that we really wanted to focus here on this article is the 67% of pastors um, that believe comfort is an idol in their church. And I thought, this is incredible, really, considering so many churches today are designed specifically for their members comfort like they play the music they like they get a coffee bar in there right get the kids out of the sanctuary during the service comfort doesn't just mean like me leaning on these pillows here no it's like (laughs) spiritual comfort like entertainment comfort entertainment comfort and they do say that they're like we want this we want you to be comfortable here we don't want you to feel judged we want you to feel like entertained like all those things like appeals to the flesh. Yeah, it appeals to the flesh, right? I mean, they give them their, you know, 30 minute message that's just completely focused on them. You know, God wants to help you and reward you, right? They don't talk about sin, let alone ever confront it, right? It's all Ooh, comfort. Talking about sin is very uncomfortable. Right, which is why they don't do it. The Holy um, Spirit is our comforter, you know, to comfort us. We're sorrowful for our sin and. Right. Well, yes. That's how it should be spoken of. (laughs) But I mean, they just don't, right? I mean, so they don't preach on sin, but let alone confront it. Um, They don't even largely require that their members even adhere to Christian teaching or Christ's commands. Um, So you're like, boy, I wonder where this idol developed from. Probably the pastor in the church that they're going to, right? Um, Well, yeah, this the... I mean, just the prosperity gospel message teaches people comfort, comfort in church and, you know, that God's going to bless you with the comforts of life. Yeah. I I think that's the problem is that that's the gospel people believe. So that's really no surprise that that's number one. 
no, it's, I mean, and I guess it's good in a sense that pastors are seeing it, but we'll talk about that here in a second, why it's probably not that good. Um, or, you know, depending on how you look, but there was just one more point. So we just really wanted to touch on the 67% and sort of use this as a jumping off point. And just one more point in here that really just, I don't know, not something I'm a fan of. So we've talked about it before, but down here it says younger pastors are more likely than older pastors to identify several of these modern day idols in their churches, particularly political power, money, and control and security. Pastors ages 18 to 44 are most likely to say political power and control and security are idols they see in their congregation. And who on earth has an 18-year-old pastor? <laughs> like, you know, there can't just be a whole plethora of churches walking around with Charles Spurgeon's at the helm, preaching at 18 years old. Um, yeah, well, he his father was a pastor. So he's not just some person that just got saved and is preaching like he's been at least... I'm going to defend. Right. Well, the- no, and I'm not going <laughs> to deny Charles Spurgeon. Yeah. But they should be the outliers, correct? If you have a random Spurgeon, you go, man, what a, you know, he must have been touched well, by God Spurgeon with a gift to preach. Preached but, on sin. I'll just say that. Well, but what's interesting <laughs> is there's a large enough sample of these 18-year-old pastors to be included in the survey. Because if there was just one 18-year-old, they might say 20 to 44. But there's enough 18 year olds walking true. around that it gets included in the age group, which is just um, incredible to me. And we've discussed talking about youth ministry. I've saw an article that was interesting to me about youth ministry. I'm trying to find the right time to talk about it. We may get to it next week, depending on what pops up. Um, but if we do, rest assured, the youthful pastor uh, will probably be a focal point. That we will discuss because we are not very big fans. And, you know, honestly, most of these 18 year olds are probably in youth ministry, I would assume. Uh, they're probably not senior pastors in a church, which, which is, is still not good. No, it's not good. That's not Again, good. We'll save that for I know, another there's time. So much I we don't say have right enough now. time to go on the youth pastor, uh, 18 year old. Anywho. So how do we get here? Um, that's the question, right? How do we get to a place where 67% of Protestant pastors believe idol or comfort is an idol in their church? And funny enough, um, an article from the very same website in the like very same day was published. Um, and if you want to read this headline, honey. Popularity of sin gives the opportunity to proclaim truth. Mm-hmm. Sure does. And then you want to just read those two paragraphs? Good has come from the seeker-sensitive movement, which loudly declared, you can belong before you believe. Many churches, including mine, ran similar strategies from the same playbook, all in the name of reaching the lost for Jesus. We made church casual, practical, attractional, and uplifting. Undoubtedly, these strategies were birthed out of a noble desire to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to lost people who historically felt hesitant to darken the doors of a church. Knowing this history, 
we can understand why churches have shied away from addressing the more sensitive and culturally volatile sin issues of the day. Years ago, there was less of a need to focus on specific sin issues because most of society shared a consensus about moral standards of right versus wrong. But with passing time, the culture changed, and what people once widely accepted as sin, they now just accept. Yes, they do. And let me just say, first off, uh, that statement that he said, you can belong before you believe is a terrible message to give to unbelievers, in my opinion. Yeah. If they already belong, then why does it matter if they believe? Maybe they can just be tricked and convinced into it. But um, as a whole, I think I agree with this statement. Um, But the problem with this statement is that the same seeker-sensitive message um, in that brand that the pastors cultivate and that their churches cultivate, that sort of leads to that church growth, it prevents them from making the necessary adjustments to address these issues. Mm -hmm. You know, even when it's slapping them in the face, you know, and they got sin abounding in their congregation, you know, they've been conditioned into a certain way to pastor in a certain, you know, environment in their church that sort of prevents them or stops them from making that adjustment. Um, you know, we live in a Christian culture and a church culture specifically. Um, and I know that this is going to be broad brushing. So your specific church may not be this. Um, but a large percent of them would be, um, especially those that would have that seeker sensitive moniker placed on them. Um, you know, and we've talked about this before, church growth equals church success. That's how they equate mm-hmm. their success. Um you know, so they won't put themselves in a place of offending and losing those members in their church. You know, and especially if you design your entire church around getting sinners in and making them comfortable, why would you ever upset that? You know, it just isn't something that's going to happen by and large. And, you know, I went and looked for myself. You guys can go and look for yourself. Go try to find a message that Joel Osteen gave on transgenderism. Or go try to find a message that Rick Warren preached on abortion. Uh, I couldn't find them. Maybe you can. But oddly enough, I did find a message that Rick Warren felt comfortable preaching on George Floyd. Not on abortion, but George Floyd. So, you know, they won't preach on that stuff, right? Because they've built up this pastoral style in this church environment that prevents them from rocking the boat, Mm -hmm. you know, because you build your church around sinners, you're not going to rock that boat and lose all your congregation. So they just can't, it seems. And, you know, this mindset that would lead you ultimately, like I said, to that seeker sensitive mindset, it just prevents you from dealing with these deep issues of sin in your congregation, I think. I know, I was going to say just on that, that phrase, you can be long before you believe that so many churches And that's just, that's a part of how they do evangelism. They just say, bring them in here and just love on them. That's what they need. If we just love them and are kind to them, then they'll believe. How many people was Jesus kind and loving to? (laughs) They killed him. Like if it didn't work for Jesus, it's not going to work for you. But this idea though, um, you know, making people feel like they belong. 
that isn't something you bring into the church. Like the church is for the congregation of believers. But if you want to make people feel loved by you, you, you should be telling a congregation to go do that on their own. They are the ones to share the gospel. Um, because you're, you're kind of removing that from them and just saying, just bring the sinners in. Don't worry about preaching the gospel to them. I'll do that. Just get them in. And it's just, a, it's just trying to, I don't know how, what the word is, but it's just kind of twisted and it's taking responsibility off of congregation. Um, kind of make, you know, only telling them it's okay to be a coward and all you got to do is invite them and I'll do the. I'll do the preaching. I'll do the saving. Um, I think that is very much for a cowardly congregation that sounds appealing to them. They just got to invite them and, and tell them, hey, there's coffee and donuts and there's really good music and you're just going to be loved on. Like, who wouldn't want to go and feel like, you know, everybody well, wants to feel that way. Like, I'll go to your church when I'm feeling down too. <laughs> right. And I mean, that also just leads into that comfort idol of like man i don't mean outreach ministry like all i got to do is ask my buddy if he wants to show up to church easy peasy i just did outreach ministry well how about you are just gospel around the world but you're just creating this false idea that being a christian is all happy happy joy joy but really when you're a christian you're not going to be loved by everybody you're gonna be hated you're gonna be persecuted so when they go out if they're say, which probably aren't, but they're going to go out and preach their gospel that you, you know, shared with them that isn't the true gospel. And they're going to go try and they're going to get shot down. You know, how are they going to handle these trials? It's going to be like, that isn't how the people at church treated me when I was a sinner. But that's the reality. No, it is. And, you know, so you look at this and you're like, well, what's the result, right? What's the result of this seeker sensitive that was great for this church growth, right? And, you know, as our first article pointed out, it leads your congregation to the sin of idolatry and comfort. Um, They're breeding the very sin that they're complaining about now, which is astounding. And um, one other point is he makes up here, uh, and I think he makes a good uh, good point here in this piece, um, but I think he's knocking on the wrong door, as it were, Um, So this subheading that he has up here is he says, even non-believers are sensing the absurdity of sin. People are longing for the sound of biblical truth spoken clearly. Mm. And I think that this might be the great tragedy of our day. Um, It's not the rampant sin, right? The materialism, the secularism, those are problems, but they're not new problems. They've been around forever. Our problem is that when they, you know, these people actually do wind up finding their way to a church, what they get is a watered down, self-help, culturally appropriate Mm -hmm. mischaracterization of the gospel um, that really never leads them anywhere to any sort of like true reflection or any true repentance. Um, Yeah, yeah. I mean, it just kind of leads them to a place where they're never really truly giving their heart to Christ. And they're ultimately, they see through the sham and they either wind up leaving or they're just 
watered down sort it's of. It's just too easy for wolves to come in in sheep's clothing and and fake it. Like if you aren't truthful up front about sin, you're going to have a lot of wolves in your church. They're going to devour your sheep. Like what kind of a shepherd doesn't protect and feed his flock? A kind that's focused on, I saw a great meme <laughs> the other day. It was like, you know, a group of sheep and there was like a wolf behind them. And a pastor, like a shepherd was like, oh, look out, there's a wolf. And then one of the sheep stepped forward and was like yelling at him. He's like, hey, how dare you? You're making that wolf feel awkward. You know, like basically we need to make the wolf feel comfortable around the sheep rather than ridding ourselves yeah. of the wolves. Uh, it was kind of a funny meme. It was sad. I mean, it's funny, but it's sad because it is true. Yeah, it is true. Um, so he also makes this really good point here. Um, or I should say he doesn't make a good point here. <laughs> it's a point that drives me nuts um, whenever I hear it. And it's what everyone does sort of anytime they discuss anything even mildly difficult from Scripture. And I don't know if I can find it in here. Um, yeah, right here. So I'll just read it. He says, too many avoid preaching about some of the uncomfortable issues of our day, like sexual immorality, gender confusion, abortion, money, or casual divorce. But these problems are tangible symptoms of a culture separated from its savior. All right, that's all good. But here's the part that drives me nuts. He says, I don't advocate teaching on these sensitive issues in order to guilt trip or condemn the listener, but to probe the soul like a doctor poking around the patient's body asking, does this hurt? And what drives me nuts about this, I forgot to pull it up on the screen. You guys can see it down here, um, this little paragraph. And all these articles will be linked in the show notes. You can go read them for yourself. But what drives me nuts about this is, why mention this at all? Why mention like, well, you know, I don't say this so that you can guilt trip people into, like, as if the pastors reading this would be thinking, like, oh, you know what, I could just guilt trip people. <laughs> into coming out of their sin. What a marvelous idea. Like, it's just, it's so foolish. Like, how about you just tell pastors to preach on this stuff, to teach on it, because scripture speaks on it. It's just scripture. Just say that. No caveats, no apologies. Just teach as You're, Paul, you know, he would put it in yeah. Acts 20, verse 27. He says, the whole counsel of God, go preach the whole counsel of God. And we actually just talked about this in our daily devotional this or last week, I believe it was, um, where we talked about Luke 14, 26. And this is probably the most caveated, apologized for, explained away verse in all of scripture. Um, I would be curious, I was, when I was typing these up, I was like, I wonder if there's any other verses that people can think of that are like, no, dude, every time you hear this message, they're like, well, you know, just hold on a second. All right, let's explain. Like, because I feel like this is the number one. Um, so if you know any verses like that, let us know in the comments. I'd be interested to hear what you have to say. But Luke 14, 26, if you're familiar, it says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. Yep. I knew that's the one you were going to bring up. I didn't remember the verse, but I was like, I bet that one. <laughs> no, right? 
And do you ever hear that verse preached without the pastor immediately being like, no, of course, Jesus doesn't mean to hate them. You know, what he really means is in whatever they want to say, right? That's always the way that verse is preached. Well, because people can say if you have, I don't know, maybe it says anger or, or is it hatred in your heart is like murder. So they might say that that's what he's saying, which would be contradicting. Sure. And if you, for whatever reason, invited that sinner into your church and the very first message on scripture they ever heard was Luke 14, 26, yeah. then a little less explanation afterwards might be in order. But contrast the way that verse is always preached, you know, with the whole, oh, let me explain to you what Jesus really meant. Like, oh, Jesus is like, oh, thanks for clearing it up, man. Um, but contrast that with the way Jesus handled difficult teachings. Um, you know, when the disciples reacted. So if you go to mm -hmm. John chapter six, verse 60 through 61, um, and Jesus says, or it, it reads, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Mm. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? So I would just implore you guys to take a second to go read John chapter 6. The whole thing, obviously, it's the gospel of John. It's wonderful. Um, but look at what Jesus is responding to. Like, He's teaching some hard stuff. I'm the bread of life. Mm -hmm. You know, he's basically, you know, superseding Moses and what God did for Israel in the desert. And he's saying, yeah, whatever he gave them, it was just food. It was meaningless. It, you know, they eat it today, hungry tomorrow, right? But when you eat my bread, you'll never hunger. I'm greater than Moses. Like, this is a hard teaching from Jesus. No punches pulled, no pity parties no caveats. He doesn't even give cat. He just one hard explanation, hard explanation, hard explanation. And then he gets done. His disciples are like, holy, who can hear? Like these people are going to go then crazy. Was it Peter says like, where else can I go? You know, you have the words of truth. Even if I don't understand it, there's nowhere else to go. Right. But there's no verse in there where Jesus goes, all right, guys, listen, hold on. Obviously, I'm not talking about bread. I'm talking about my holy. He doesn't give an explanation. He just throws it out there. There it is. Oh, are you going to complain about it, disciples? Because it's a hard teaching. Like, there's none of that. It's incredible to see the way Jesus. I mean, how many times those who have ears to hear, let them hear. He could have dumbed it down. He could have broken it down to the comfort level to where everybody that was idolatrous of comfort went, Oh, that does make me feel good. No, he was just like, there it is. I'm the bread yeah. of life. Yeah. You can want Moses's bread. It's nothing compared to everybody me. Everybody wants to be like Jesus only, you know, the loving, but they don't understand <laughs> that love is tough love and it's truth and it's offensive. Like, why are you trying to redefine what loving like Jesus means? Right, because it's so enlightening just to read through that and then look at this seeker-sensitive model. Jesus gives them this brutal teaching so hard, the disciples are even like, holy smokes, man, like, that's, that's tough. And he doesn't even explain. He challenges their conviction. He's like, oh, yeah, it's too hard for you, huh? And they're like, what? Like, think about that in your church. When was the last time they preached on something that was that hard 
and they just challenged you. They just let it hang out there and no apologies, no caveats, no, oh, but you can repent and father, you know, the father loves you. Not that any of that's wrong, but just I'm confronting your sin. It's wrong or whatever it is. This is Christian teaching. This is how we're to carry our, you know, carry ourselves in this world. And that's it. Let the word speak for itself. I just get, and I know that there's pastors out there doing it. I'd love to hear. We ask for sermon recommendations all the time. If you got a pastor that's, that does that, he doesn't make excuses for Jesus. He doesn't make excuses for God. He's not trying to soft sell scripture. We want to know about him. We want to promote him on whatever platform that we have. Um, but we need more pastors like this. Mm-hmm. I mean, this seeker sensitive model of church, sure. We got mega churches everywhere. What does I think it matter? It's just this idea that you can claim a city for Christ. Like the idea that I'm going to turn this city into a Christian. Everybody here is going to be a Christian. We're just going to love them so good. <laughs> They're all going to be Christians. I think it's that mentality. We're going to have everybody in that strip club wearing a cross necklace (laughs) for Jesus. Don't you know? It's yeah, it's ridiculous. Um, But yeah, so you're, you're building your church for sinners. You're never going to go out and confront sin in the way that you need to. Jesus was not building. I mean, he came for sinners. Yes. But he wasn't building a church for people to stay sinners. Right. He came to call sinners to repentance and to walk a holy life. You know. He gave hard messages and he just let it hang, you know, and we need to get back to that. Jesus is our model. He is the, like, he's the disciple maker, right? Everybody after Christ should be modeling their life. I mean, the apostles are our foundation, but they were modeling after Christ. So we follow the apostles as they followed Christ. Ultimately, we're trying to follow Christ. We don't make up our own preaching. We don't make up our own teaching. It's all scripture. You don't need to put some new spin on scripture. No, and I actually posted this great quote. Um, I heard it in one of my classes. Uh, Stephen Lawson was teaching it. And, you know, he made a simple quote about the Bible. He was like, the Bible's easy to understand. It's just hard to swallow. And I thought, yeah. And these seeker-sensitive churches, they don't want to ask their congregation to swallow that hard truth right? Because they may not show up the next Sunday. You know, we've talked before about Pastor Smotherman, and he's not a seeker-sensitive church, um, but he talks about, you know, when he is talking about these hard issues, you know, he really challenged COVID um, and the lockdown policies, the anti-Christ governor in New Mexico. He went at that hard, and she's a very beloved governor in that largely Hispanic area, And he went after and he would talk about, I know people are leaving when I bring this up. I see them walk out when I'm (laughs) preaching, like, but what are you going to do? You're just going to hide the truth and hope that, you know, your tithing coffers stay up. So uh, we got enough of that. I mean, mega churches, we got a mega church in every, you know, city. What does it matter? Christianity is declining. Faith is weak and pathetic. Just Um, look at our culture. Like, how can these mega pastors, mega churches, how are they convinced that people are becoming Christians when everybody's just, I mean, you just see it in the news. 
Christians for abortion, Christians for gay marriage. Like you see the fruit, like it's not lining up. It doesn't match. You're not taking a city for Christ, you know? No, you're taking Christians and you're dragging them into the world, basically. Um, And we've talked about this a lot before. I mean, you know, I don't believe that the church is for um, sinners. The church is for disciples. Um, That's where disciples go to get teaching. The church is for repentant sinners. Right, which are those on the discipleship path. Yes. Um, Yeah, I understand what you mean. But when you just build a church for sinners and disciples sort of become an afterthought, then this is what you you get, right? You have a Rick Warren who you can't find a sermon on abortion, but you can find one on George Floyd. Well, when you have these churches, the seeker sensitive, that's, you're saying we're not raising up disciples to do this. So we're just telling people to bring them in here and we'll, we'll do the discipling. Like you need to be training up disciples. And not that there's anything wrong with having sinners there to show up to hear preaching. But I mean, let's not even, you know, that's even lazy on the pastor. I mean, we're all called to go to all the world and share the gospel. You're not called to just set up a church in your hometown that's comfortable and just ask everyone to come to see you when they're ready. You know, so it's just, it's a, I mean, we've seen the results of it, right? And again, it's a broad brush, but I think this article, it's just fascinating that they came out almost on the exact same like day, like a day or two apart. Like, oh, the seeker sensitive church has been great, but boy, they should really start talking about sin. And then they're like, boy, these pastors are really dealing with the idol of comfort. Yeah, dude, maybe you could make a correlation. I don't know. Like, does two plus two equal four there? I don't know. Um, So do you have any last thoughts on the seeker sensitive, unwilling to touch the sin topic? We can talk forever on that, but. Yeah, let's go. All right. So um, the Bible topic again that we have for this week is on what they dub as new atheism. And I saw this article a couple of weeks ago, wanted to talk about it, but, you know, other things just kept uh, coming up, kind of pushing it back. But, you know, I think it's worth uh, addressing. So It's an opinion piece from MSNBC, if you want to read the headline, honey. Why America needs a new kind of atheism right now. Boy, do we. Um, And then do you want to just read these two paragraphs? So, um... Okay. There are two pressing crises tied to the state of religion in America today. A new style of atheism can help answer both of them. The first crisis is rooted in an excess of religion. Christian theocracy is not far off specter, but an emerging reality in America. Fueled by a radically reactionary Supreme Court that is two-thirds Catholic, Thomas Jefferson's already dilapidated and graffitied wall of separation between church and state is crumbling. The overturning of Roe v. Wade means the lives of women across the country are being held hostage by a conservative Christian conception of life. Kennedy v. Bremerton permits school officials 
to publicly pray and make students feel pressured to join in. Carson V. Is it Macon? Okay. Allows taxpayer dollars to be used to fund religious education. And at the state level, Republican-led legislators have invoked Christianity as they pursue a systemic, systematic assault on transgender rights. While abortion abolitionists convinced some Louisiana lawmakers that people who get abortions should be charged with homicide. Boy, that's a mouthful. Um, <laughs> there's so much wrong with that first paragraph. And uh, one point that I just wanted to uh, make for kind of starters here, and I'm not going to dig into it too much, because um, I think we've talked about it in the past. But when you start hearing people make the whole separation of church and state argument, um, like they're making here, you know, that, whoa, this separation of church and state, like they're not supposed to be mixed at all. Um, you can know that they're purposefully um, trying to deceive you or being deceitful with you. Because um, if you're an educated American at all, which I'm assuming this writer is fairly educated, then you know the American history. You're aware. I mean, this thing has been beaten to death, especially in modern times. So they're aware of what the separation of church and state meant to the founders. Mm -hmm. So when they try to bring it up this way, like, oh, church and state are never supposed to mix under any circumstances, they're being deceitful with you. Yes. So um, yeah. I just think that that's important to note here. Um, but there is a lot wrong with just this opening paragraph. And I think it's important to understand um, before you dive into the rest of the article, um, because it lets you know the mindset of the writer and these ideas of new atheism, you know, they come from a person that thinks, like he says, there's a crisis of excess religion in America. <laughs> like, hmm. what America are you looking what a at? Weird statement. You know, unless you really just think that any religion is an excessive amount, but we seem to be looking at two different Americas here. So pretty funny. Sad. I know. I was just thinking like how everything is like Christian's fault. Like there are lots of atheists that advocate for the unborn children. Like a lot of them are against abortion. So it's just, you know, just saying, oh, only the Christians, it's only the Christians that press this or, you know, take our rights away. But yeah, I just noticed that like it's it's got to be one kind of person to blame. Yeah, no, so, I mean there's people from all walks of faith well, and no faith that yeah. do hold to Cuz even in well, I was just going to say the verse um in Matthew 7:11, Jesus says, "Even you being evil know not know how to give good gifts to your children." So that right there, like yeah. even atheists don't agree with murdering children in the womb no i mean certainly not all of them do but um he basically just you know he goes on to decry really any form of religion in this nation um, but as we go through this article you know we're not going to cover every bit of it you know his solution what he calls this new atheism is essentially going to be to look and act even more like an organized religion. 
So he decries any form of religion and the way that he's going to try to combat it is to, in fact, look like an organized religion of atheists. <laughs> That's his grand plan. So um, the author kind of breaks this down into two um, big issues, really, to kind of start this off. Um, and that's what he's hoping his new atheism can address. And the first, like we said here, is a um, that excess of religion. That's his first big issue. Um, and then the second crisis, he says, is tied ironically um, <laughs> to the decline of religion. He says a rapidly increasing share of Americans are detaching from religious communities that provide purpose and forums for moral contemplation and not necessarily finding anything in their stead. So again, his new atheism solution is to fight the excess of religion and the decline of religion. <laughs> there you go. So um, how does this make sense? Who knows? But it's 2022, right? It doesn't need to make sense. All they need to do is tell you, and then you just accept it, right? You know, uh, the vaccines don't stop transmission. They don't stop, uh, you know, catching the virus. Uh, they don't really do anything except make your immune system weaker to future infections. But the only way to end the pandemic is to get everyone vaccinated. Well, that's what I was told at my appointment. Does it make just any the sense? Other day. Of course, it doesn't make any <laughs> sense. But you're just supposed to believe it because science. Anywho, yep. um, yeah, so he says the two problems, again, are too much religion and the decline of religion. Got it. So <laughs> you guys can go and read um, this whole article. I implore you to. I mean, you know, these are this is at least in some respects sort of the intelligentsia i guess on the other side you know he's um writing these articles in major news outlets and these are the people we're going to be dealing with in our daily life so it's worth knowing what they think and why they think it i suppose um like always we'll have this stuff linked in the show notes but we're just going to kind of pull out some of the points in here that stood out to us that we thought were worth commenting on and um the first point here that I wanted to mention is he says, um, as a leftist activist and as a person who knew many liberal and fairly secular Muslims, one of whom spurred me to become an atheist, I found this political tilt repugnant. <laughs> so his secular uh, Muslim friend spurned him to become an atheist. That sounds like a real religious man, but uh, it's good to know that liberal and progressive Muslims are as phony about their faith as those who profess a liberal or progressive form of Christianity. And this was enlightening because we're fairly new to really diving into this idea of progressive or liberal Christianity um, and really kind of what I would call deception. Mm -hmm. that this liberal and progressive Christianity is. I mean, it's largely, it's apostate. It's a heretical um, form of Christianity almost everywhere that we've seen it and everyone that's really espoused it. Um, and I imagine it's the same in the Muslim world. Not that I care a whole lot about the Muslim world in particular. Um, you know, but in this country, mm -hmm. 
I think it's important that we sort of stop treating these leftists, these progressives as just like true brothers and sisters in the faith, you know, kind of, I mean, we want to be loving, welcoming, kind, share the gospel, share the truth with them. But also when they come bringing whatever they think is truth, be like, yeah, thanks for sharing. I just gotta say, I'm convinced, um, because if you are that way toward people in your church, and if you're that way toward your own children, applying that same like cautious with the word because it offends and you just want to love. Just look at these pastors and how their children turn out. And it just dawned on me that connection because just the other day, um, I was trying to find um, an old friend on Facebook just to check on them. And then I just noticed like a, someone's name in our, in their friends list and it's the daughter, it's been like 18 years. This little girl, I recognized her name. And I'm like, oh, yeah, she's an adult now. She, you know, she was like six years old last time I saw her. Her parents were, worship, I think the worship, the mom was the worship leader. I think the dad was just like um, the youth pastor of the church that I went to as a teen when when I first heard the gospel and was saved. Um, so they had, you know, I really looked up to them. Not that I got really close with them, you know, one-on-one, but just going to church and, you know, their familiar faces and, you know, small talk now and then and knowing who their little kids were. But their daughter, and it just broke my heart. She's, I don't know, she's not, she's not transgender, but she's a lesbian obviously and shaved head piercing you know just gothic like she looked adorable as a kid like you would never imagine and why she would go this way but I noticed her parents are not in that church anymore they live in a different state and their Facebook profiles are all you know rainbow they're just very liberal. And and that's what they make known. The first thing that you notice about, about them that they put out there is number one, we support, um, you know, gay rights, you know, we're accepting. That's number one. So if this mentality, you know, just loving people, just accepting them, you don't want to scare them away with the truth, that's going to happen to your congregation exactly what happened to their daughter. It's the same thing. They're afraid. They don't, that verse Spencer said, if you don't hate your mom and your dad, brother and sister, that's exactly what it was. They, they love their daughter more than they love Jesus. So they didn't want to offend her. So now she's lost. She thinks she's saved. They think they're still in good standing with Jesus, but they're not now. Right. This is that point that we've kind of talked about before. Like we try to consider it love, like holding somebody's hand as we walk them to hell. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Like, well, this is love. I'm being very kind to them, you know, but this is, you know, and I think this is a true calling card of a leftist sort of progressive Christian is they place their, or they let their politics drive their faith. So they have a daughter whom Mm -hmm. they love and, you know, 
pray for them. I mean, I can't imagine anything harder. You know, I mean, well, there's probably, you know, your kid die would probably be harder, but no, very, this is harder because they're on their way to hell and they're going to die the second well, but, death. You know, they, they go this sinful lifestyle. And it's like, how do you wrap your mind around it? But it's like, man, you see this so often as they just go, well, whatever, God's just got to be okay with it then. And it just becomes their politics starts driving what they believe and what their faith says. And yeah, I mean, you wind up just basically cementing your child in this sinful lifestyle. And then you yourself get walked away from your faith, um, rather than being a pillar for your kid to look to and lean on. Uh, right. You just, you know, yeah. make them comfortable in that, that sin lifestyle. I know, I've noticed there's this several friends, you know, their kids are teens now, but they've they're not Christians anymore because their children came out and said they were gay. And so they side with their child instead of standing in the truth and correcting their child. I only know one friend who had a child who went off that way, homosexual lifestyle, and they told the truth to that child. The child is not homosexual anymore. Praise God. Yeah, I mean... Again, it's it's important, you know, Jesus has to be number one. Um, yeah. The word of God's got to be number one, you know, above above your kids. And, you know, you could maybe even, I, I wonder if they would have asked that question. Are children an idol? Because yeah. you, know, you probably get 98% of Christians that would, um, you know, because we do place children, I mean, they place them above spouses in a lot of places above God, you know, and yeah. I think that's, that's what it leads you to. So progressive Christianity, progressive Islam, apparently um, cut from the same cloth, but um, you had this paragraph here that you wanted to bring up. Oh, if I can find it, but oh, it was just like just one. I don't know where the, it's not a paragraph. Oh, it's, it's just um, like a sentence. Yeah. He said, I knew the claim that a God exists could not be proven or disproven. And I was just like, well, the thing is, is God makes himself known. Like you can't prove that he exists by like showing him like, here's God, like he's a spirit. Like, I don't know what people are thinking when they're like, prove that God exists, like do you want to see him? Like, is that the proof you need? But there's evidence of a creator is really more believable than just pointing at, you know, and seeing God. Cause then I don't know. That's just, I don't think that's as even credible. Like the evidence of him in creation is enough. It's more than enough. So there's no evidence that there isn't a creator is my point. Like what's your, what are the, it's called non-falsifiable, the term, like you can't prove that it's false. Like, and I was just thinking of there, there's, a, um, well, there was a guy who wrote, well, you brought up another book though, but I didn't read it. And it was more, it was a later book. What was it called? Case. Yeah. Yeah, the case oh, yeah. for Christ is one of those. Yeah, and I had a different one in my mind. But I was thinking like, well, an atheist would make a really bad, like, cold case investigator because they ignore evidence. Like, I don't know. So anyway, there, there is, I guess, a couple uh, authors 
the one I was thinking of was Cold Case Christianity. I didn't read it. I know I've heard of it a lot and I wanted to read it and I never got around to it. Jay Warner Wallace. Um, I don't remember who was telling me about it. But yeah, I guess he used to be an atheist. And then he just saw there's too much evidence for Christianity. You know, he just used his skills from his job and, you know, came to be a believer. He's like, there's too much evidence. Yeah, and that's kind of the way the case for Christ. It's a bit older, but I think he was a a journalist that, you know, did his own investigation and, you know, they ultimately came to the same um, conclusion that, yeah, there, Mm -hmm. there must have been, you know, it's just funny. God. Yeah. Like an Um, atheist to not see evidence, but then be in a career where you need evidence to prove things like. No. And it's funny. We were just reading that, you know, we've been going through that history book with our um, kids, the 5,000 year leap and the fifth rule of that of the 28 they talk about you know that there is a divine creator um and they talk a lot about john locke who very instrumental figure in his writings influenced our founders a lot and he sort of talks you know even back you know the 17 16 1700s that they understood you know just from creation that there must be a creator right and they give those certain evidences that yeah, we don't need to see a God to know that there's a God, right? And, you know, he talks about things like, if we're reasoning and thinking beings, we couldn't have been created from a rock. Like, you can't create something that's smarter than like, if a rock has no reason or thinking ability, it can't create something that does. You have to be created by something as smart or smarter than you, right? Like in order, in that same mindset. So Mm -hmm. um, just, yeah, simple evidences and stuff that you can um, use to know that there's a God. And that's what the Bible tells us. Um, So the point that I wanted to bring up here that I thought uh, the first major one, I guess here, he says, um, politics after all is about power and justice and needs to be balanced alongside extra political quest for truth and morality. That's what this atheist Um, says in his article. And I think that's very true um, in one respect. But atheism um, can't solve that quest for morality without borrowing from religion. That's his problem. Um, Which again, this new atheism does heavily. Um, The author even makes uh, the point several times in the article that he regularly attends religious meetings and small groups. And which is, this is kind of where he gets his idea for this new atheism organized religion. Um, Now the atheists, you know, they generally do sort of mix and match and they try to, so they'll mix and match, you know, different morals and virtues and stuff from other religions. And then they just sort of try to package them and claim them as their own or sort of universal. Um, But they aren't right. They're from religion. That's where they get their Mm -hmm. ideas from. And what's funny is in that same book, you know, our founding fathers, Um, Again, religious men, they sort of did this already. Um, Benjamin Franklin, in that book, he talks about, um, you know, building this nation as a religious nation, and he called it the American religion. And he found these principles that he thought, you know, they were religious principles, but they were universal across religions. They were, you know, like five or six principles that every religion largely agreed on. And that was sort of the... the religion that he kind of 
thought, yeah, this is sort of what needs to govern America. So religious men of the day have already sort of done that. Now this new atheism, I mean, I guess, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. So he's just trying to recapture that same idea. Like maybe we should get these morals and virtues that are universal. <laughs> yeah, we already did that. Um, yeah. It was back at the founding. Um, but it's a good try. Um, it's a good try. Uh, so, yeah, I just thought that was interesting because, right, I mean, if you're an atheist, and I know that that's a big argument. I'm probably not the smartest person in the world to make the argument against morals um, in an atheistic mindset, I suppose, but you do see it a lot. You know, they try to claim some level of morality or virtue, but if you're just ram random chemicals um, kind of firing off, then I don't know where you come yeah. up with any sort of standard of morality. It's just sort of agreed upon morality, but really it's just whoever's in control and whoever has power and authority, then they would get to sort of set the standard on morality. Yeah. Who do they think they are that they get to set the standard? <laughs> well, we're the most important people in the universe. So, um, the next point is he says, <laughs> communitarian atheism is the best of all worlds. Um, this is sort of a term I think he kind of comes up with, or maybe he had borrowed it from somewhere, but this is the first time I've read about communitarian atheism. And to me, this is the equivalent of fiscal conservative. You'll hear this word tossed around in the realm of politics. Do you know what a fiscal conservative is, honey? No. So fiscal conservatives, really, it's just the mindset that like, I want to be as rich as I can, and I don't want anyone to touch my money. That's the conservative piece of it. And then they're socially liberal. Basically, I want to be as rich as possible. No one can touch my money. And then I want to do whatever I want to do and not feel bad about it. Just, just a no moral bounds. Person. Yeah, I want to be rich and morally bankrupt is essentially what fiscal conservative means. Okay. Um, so when you hear that, so that kind of is, is what communitarian atheism sounds like to me. Um, it kind of sounds like, you know, I want all the joys of a communal religion, that whole like love, compassion, unity, but with none of the responsibility that comes from belief in a higher power. So, so the seeker friendly church? Well, they will at least acknowledge a higher power. You know, they'll at least. But what's worse is acknowledging a higher power and not submitting. I think they will be judged harsher. Well, right. God does not like lukewarm that's for sure um he would rather you um i guess dismiss him entirely than be lukewarm but you know whereas fiscal conservative i would say that's a selfish political and economic stance it's just all about you i would this communitarian atheism sounds selfish to me as well it's just everything about me i want friends but don't ever tell me what to do just hang out with me and Let's all meditate together on okay. morals that we just came up with. You can't ever be a person that like gives advice to someone. You're not ever going to be like a friend to anybody or help anybody out. You don't have any moral compass. What well, kind of person would maybe you be? if you were a true atheist, but I don't know how many of those there really are. Um, because the Bible doesn't claim that there's atheists, right? They, the Bible claims that they sub 
suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's a funny term and it made me think of that fiscal conservative, you know, I mean, you can be a fiscal conservative as long as you're also like socially conservative, I guess. But if you're just like, I want money and no restraint, I don't think you're a super great person for holding that stance. I don't know. Suppressing um, the truth in unrighteousness, though, is even what professing Christians do. Yes. When you live willfully unrighteous, you are suppressing the truth. Yeah. So that isn't just about people who deny the existence of God. That's anybody who lives unrighteously. So, um, this next point here, he says, atheists have an intuitive understanding of and self-interest in pushing back against religious creep into the affairs of the state. If they're more organized as an interest group, they're more likely to help create a mandate for action. So he's afraid of religious creep into the state affairs. But secular humanism is a religion, essentially. I mean, we see the ravenous, um, you know, fury in which these people defend their secular humanist beliefs. Mm -hmm. It's a religion. You know, we've seen this with the abortion debate, right? Again, it's just a religion that steals its forms and practices from other religions. Yeah. Um, because what's funny is earlier in the piece, you know, he decried that um, that case Kennedy versus Bremerton that ruled uh, that allowed prayer in public school, and he talked about oh they allow prayer in school and it even convinces kids to pray, and he's upset about it. That's one of his main pillars for excessive religion. But like nowhere in the piece does he denounce drag queens reading in public libraries. That's or, frightening. Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't decry the whole pro-LGBTQ teacher that's pumping their sexually immoral lifestyle well, in the student's their, face. That's just another that's just antichrist religion. You could still call that a form of religion because they're worshiping something. Right. It's well, still a religion. That's, again, that's what we're saying. This secular humanism is religion. Yes. What they're saying is like, we don't want your religion creeping in here because we got our own. Yep. We're trying to creep in. It's know? always been that way. Just and we're creeps anyways. People worshiping false gods. It is. Yeah. But yeah, so to this new atheism author, you know, preaching humanist values, completely acceptable. Religious values, not okay. That's religious creep. Um but then again, just remember, Christians are the hypocrites, we're told, um, not the secular world. They're all upright and moral, and we're just a bunch of Christian they're good, hypocrites. They're good sinners. So um, he goes on in this article, and I guess there's a, a fella named, this professor named Berlin Blau, Berliner Blau, and from Georgetown. And he says he worries that liberal secular America has no counterpart to right-wing legal thinking and activism that advances the goals of the religious right. And this just stood out to me um, 
for no other reason than it was really astounding, I think, to read. Because we on sort of the more right, you know, Christian side of the aisle, we always just assume that the left has sort of a stranglehold on everything. The news mm-hmm. media, politics, they academia, yeah. like everything. And now here's this guy being like, well, we have nothing to combat the Christian right wing legal thinking. They You're own like, 95% of the media. <laughs> yeah, like, so, and I guess a sense, maybe it gives me hope that maybe in fact we do. And we just are biased and blind to it. But if he's actually nervous and worried about it, I guess that's a good thing. Uh, but I read it. I no. was like, again, what is he looking at? I don't I don't know. He's looking at America that has an excess of religion and this, you know, overpowering right wing <laughs> grip on legal and activism. I don't know what he's seeing. Not the country I'm living in. But uh, let me see how many more points do we have here? Like three or four more. So we'll just try to get to them. Um, He says, when the Christian right is allowed to tell us when life begins, that's an affront to the equality of Jewish women or a Muslim woman or a non-believing woman. This is that professor again, Berlin or Blau. Why does he say to a Jewish or Muslim woman? Well, we talked about this a few... Do they disagree with that? Yeah, they do. Remember that... how we talked about that, um, what is it, like Exodus 20? Remember that whole, like, if he strikes a woman or whatever, and she gives birth prematurely, and they try to claim that as abortion? Remember we talked about yes, that? Yes, yes. Okay. I think that's sort of the Jewish, you know, and this is the liberal progressive Jewish stance. Um, you know, again, the liberal first jewish second sort of stance i think on that um but yeah he says you know that somehow this is an affront when the christian right tells people when life begins i would say it's a blessing that somebody actually brings real clarity to this issue like think how absurd that statement is this is supposedly a georgetown professor so another good reason to not send your child to georgetown they let people like this teach them things like this say if christians didn't say when life begins who would they blame next who would be the enemy or the you know the the wall they need to break down to get their way i don't think there would be a wall to break down i mean if the christians weren't in the way You know, we've talked on this show and done articles that, I mean, there's governors that were running that wanted post-birth abortion or post-birth murder. It's not abortion at that point. Yeah. They advocated for it, right? So, you know, when someone is advocating for the life of an unborn child, that's an affront to this somehow country-saving new atheism. That's so crazy. But even like... Just it's scientific, like life begins at conception. You observe growth. If it's growing, it's alive. When did it begin growing? At conception. Right. But this goes back to the whole, all they have to do is tell you something and it becomes true. You know, the COVID vaccine works because they say it does, right? 
So if they go, it's not a baby, it's a zygote. And you go, oh, okay, that makes sense. That's not a baby, it's a clump of cells. Just get rid of it. Oh, okay. Well, it's just women's reproductive rights. Oh, okay, that makes sense. It, you're not a woman. You don't get to decide. You're a man. You can't tell me. Oh, okay. I guess I'm just a man. What do I know? Well, you used to be a clump of cells. You have a voice. <laughs> it's all idiotic. But again, it's a blessing to have Christians go, nah, man, that's a baby. That's a baby. You can't just kill it willy nilly because, you know, you got work to get back to on Monday. Um, it's crazy. I'm in the Air Force. I could tell you guys about the uh, what they just pushed out on their abortion laws and watch your eyes bleed, but I'll save that for another time. Um, but yeah, I mean, like you said, this is selfish. Um, this idea of telling you when life begins is an affront is just selfish. Um, yeah. You know, it's you're impinging on my ability to do whatever I want. Yeah, I mean, it's just selfish. So crazy. Um, I got a bit to read here. Can't I pull it up in the article, but I forgot where this is actually a pretty lengthy article. And I forgot where I pulled this stuff all from. So you're just gonna have to go read the article for yourself, or just take our word for it. Either way, we're trustworthy and honest folk. Just take our word for it. Um, but he says here, but ultimately it is not enough for atheists today to define themselves through opposition to religious overreach. Atheists excel at critiquing religion and should continue to do so respectfully. But we flounder when it comes to thinking about how to meet human needs that are rarely supported by systems of secular life. Religion seeks to answer why we exist and what ethical and social obligations attend existence and creates rich, evocative institutions and rituals around these questions. Atheists need to do this too, not just view their lives as defined in negative terms by the absence of gods, but in positive terms about the world as we believe it exists. As we believe it exists. We deny evidence <laughs> yeah like i just don't know how you can get a large collection of atheists to think about meeting human needs why would they care i don't know yeah it is. i mean just this weird. always baffles me like especially beyond your lifetime it's one thing if you're like oh, i want to help the babies because it makes me feel good cool but when you're talking about you know sacrificing for you like your own personal your own happiness and all this stuff for people for some, you know, unknown person in an indefinite amount of time into the future. Like, if you don't believe in a God or an afterlife, I don't know why you would. You may get a few one-off like this author, but why would any other large contingent of people yeah. think that? It just doesn't make sense to me. Why do they me. care about what happens after they die? Like we've said before, like they only care about here and now. Once they're gone, if they're just nothing, whatever they think happens to them. Like, why do you care about leaving the world a better place? I don't understand. I mean, again, I'm not an atheist, so I'm sure one of them has an argument to make on that. But if you don't believe in a God or an afterlife or anything, then yeah, I don't know why it would matter even mean? to you. Like, we care about future generations 
um, the gospel. Like we know this world isn't our home. We're not trying to make the world like we want it to be good as good as it can be for people to enjoy life, but not to have more rights that they can do wrong to others, you know, with just abortion and just distorting, just like homosexuality is destroying the future. That isn't preserving humanity. It is weird. It's because they talk about making the world a better place, but they're really doing the complete opposite. But Christians, they, they want it to be better, but it can only be better through the gospel. Like our answer is always Christ. It's truth. It's truth. And in that, you know, seek first the kingdom of God and all else will be, you know, he'll bless you with. Yeah, I mean, again, I just feel like whatever they could come up with, it would just be stunted overall by like your own inherent need for self-gratification, self-enrichment. Because, I mean, maybe you would want to think about future generations or maybe you even know that like, hey, it's probably best if we say, but I don't know. I mean, you have to just inherently be focused on what's best for you. Like mm-hmm. it just, yeah. Because there is no future. There is no. It doesn't make sense. There's nothing good in the future based on their way of thinking. Because selfishness hurts other people. But this is also a good, uh, I guess, interjection point on like, this is why we really need to preach the true gospel of yes. sacrifice, dying to self, denying yourself. It's not about health, wealth, and prosperity. It's not about you know, the power of positive thinking. It's about preaching Christ, glorifying God, and loving your brothers. That's what it is, you know? So, you know, let's not just shame on the atheists, right? When we've been doing this well enough ourselves for a very long time. So, um, yeah, yeah, you're right. We have a responsibility. I just got one last point to bring up here from this article. He says, Atheists should create, um, he says, atheists should create deliberate communities. And this can take many forms. For example, study groups for, for pursuing great questions of existence by reading works of literature, philosophy, and yes, even religious texts. Religion can be an inspiration, but it can't be an authority, this Columbia philosopher said, or he told me in an interview and argued religious texts must always be subject to moral deliberation and moral argument. It says atheists should form secular meditation groups or explore something else that also, uh, or that allows for contemplation if it's not their cup of tea. So like, this sounds like the author is really just being like, all right, guys, let's just quit beating around the bush and just form a religion based on secular humanism materialism, whatever you want to call it, with all the trappings and expressions and writings of a religion, but we just worship ourselves at the end of the day. Does that sound good to everybody? You do you. Cool. Yeah. We know that. So it sounds like the whole big idea of new atheism is to just become an organized religion. Yeah, it does. That's So his big solution to an excess of religion and a decline of religion is to make atheism a religion. 
All right. I can't get anything else out of it, but that that's exactly what it sounds like. Got it. So new atheism is really just old atheism. It's just borrowing a bunch of, you know, moral and virtuous I guess they can't um, come up with their own from things. other religions. Like you have to read these. What did it say? Um, yeah. Read, read these works of literature, philosophy, and yes, religious texts. Like, okay. So like religion. Yeah. So it's kind of funny. We went through this whole article and you're like, so he just wants to make a religion. Great. <laughs> like, wow, that was a lot of words to just say, can we just form an organized religion already? But the thing is, what he's saying there is what professing Christians do. Um, religion can be an inspiration, but it can't be an authority. That's the kind of people we have in these seeker-friendly churches. They're seeker-sensitive, whatever you call it. That's exactly what they're doing, though. When they go to church, they just want to be a little inspired, but they don't really. they just want to keep doing what they want to do. They're the oh, same yeah. people that he's describing. The churches are absolutely so they'll leave with our that. churches, and they will probably rather go that because there's a little bit of religion mixed in. Same thing, right? And that's the point that he actually makes in this article. And I mean, I guess kudos to him for seeing it. You know, he talks in there about a lot of people are leaving religion, but they're just becoming these this group. And I think what they call them is like the, um, I can't think, of it, but it's like. They're nothings, right? They're noners. They're yeah. just, they're non-religious. They don't really, and he kind of makes the point that once they go from religion into this non-religious state, they sort of become apathetic in most areas, yeah. politics and all these different things where he's saying, hey, if we can get these guys that are leaving religion and rather than becoming a noner, we can basically move them right into our church, this new atheism. Well, now we can give them something to, you know, believe in well, and work for what they think because he's religious <laughs> so he talks in there that he was raised muslim um which or islam was the faith he was raised in and became atheist so he i would assume just has a lot of leftover islam in him that he's just trying to package his atheism when in fact maybe he's just suppressing his own religious upbringing this is a really confusing thing to try to like you can't understand it it just boggles your mind like you don't come to a conclusion. This is like, what we've talked about before. A lot of these ideas take, like they're so stupid, only smart people can come up with them. Because it takes really <laughs> smart people yes. with a lot of free time so. to come up with these ideas. Like you can write a, whatever, a 10,000 word essay on MSNBC about new atheism and you come to the end and you're like, oh, you want an organized religion? Why didn't you just say that in the first 200 words and save me some time? So pretty Everybody, funny. Everybody, yeah. They just um, want religion. But do you have any last thoughts on this article or the studies we looked at before we dive into our sermon recommendation? Not at the moment. All right. So for our sermon recommendation, I can't believe we've gone this long into our podcast. And I don't believe we've ever recommended a Paul Washer sermon yet. We may have. I feel I like we have. So. I think it's because Paul Washer, he just punches too hard. I mean, maybe this is a perfect sermon for the seeker-sensitive uh, mindset because Paul Washer is the antithesis. There is a funny, um, if you watch, there's like a YouTube channel called like Reform Wiki or something. 
and he did like a little five minute uh little skit video and i think it was entitled like joel osteen invites paul washer to his church and it's just kind of a funny play on like paul washer's church but then he like interjects or it's joel osteen's church but he interjects like paul washer sayings in there so I it's like see joel that. osteen like hey you know welcome and he's like oh you're all going to hell and they're like what you know what is happening here so um paul washer but oh, let me pull it up here is that the one you're posting no so this is just a legitimate sermon here on observable evidence of true conversion. Maybe it's the one I, so, oh, I'm sorry. I was just thinking, maybe it's the one I had the kids listen to before. Or I don't think it has anything to do with Joel Osteen, but. No, this one was just kind of a little, it's not even like a legitimate Paul Washer sermon or anything. It's just kind of a funny little um, okay. five minute video. But the one we're going to highlight is, again, observable evidence of true conversion. And I think this is vitally important, especially in this whole, you know, seeker sensitive, you know, Hey, come down to the altar, say a prayer. I believe you're saved. Have a nice day. Like, no, nah, I mean, you got to The tree's got to bear fruit, right? You've got to see that. And Paul washer is going to really, mention it in the way only Paul washer can. He sees that. Yeah. He really paints the picture. Well, about the kind of gospel that's preached. Cause I, I remember I was showing the kids, it wasn't the thing you were telling me about, but he just kind of was just kind of making fun of the way the gospel's preached in churches. And, you know, people, you know, the pastor will say, like, God loves you. Paul Washer's like, really? God loves me? Well, I love me, too. Like, everything's agreeable. And then, you know, the pastor will be like, God's got a special plan for your life. No way. I got a special plan for my life, too. Yeah, yeah. That I don't know where that one is, but that one was really funny. The kids, you know, I always try to like. I'm always warning them about false gospel, and so they really enjoyed that one. They they saw the humor in it. And they understood. I'm so glad that they noticed, you know, that there is a way that people have preached the gospel, and this is the true gospel. I, I think I talk about that kind of stuff with them a lot. It needs to be talked about a lot. Um... But Paul Washer's like really the one who put the fear of God in me because I used to, I used to believe maybe you did too, that you say a prayer and you're saved and it doesn't matter how you live. Like I used to believe that I'd never lose my salvation, but my salvation was rooted in my prayer. I prayed and no, I, I believed I was first, saved because I prayed a prayer. Like the first couple of times I listened to like Paul Washer and, you know, Vody is the same way. I used to get frustrated because they would be talking about, you know, evidence of salvation or assurance. And you're like, you know, they talk about a lot of things, you know, judging the tree mm -hmm. by the fruit and like, you know, first John and all these sorts of things. But you're like, you're waiting for that one hook line. Like, if you do this, then and you're like, <laughs> no, but I didn't hear that. Where was the if then? There is no if then, right? Like, it's a constant examination of your heart. Yes. And are you following Christ's command? Do you love the brother and all that stuff. And you're just like, all right, but where's the altar call, man? Like I'm ready to come down, ready to give my life to the Lord. And like, I know it's like, it's the, not there. Right. So it can be frustrating, but it's I like think that it's Catholic important. church mentality that I still had, like live like hell all week. Not that I, I didn't continue oh, going Mickey to Catholic church. And then, well, I just know people have said this. I didn't really do this, but, you know, and then confess your sins. And it's kind of how people, have that same mentality with the altar calls yeah. yeah so it'll be good um 
It yeah. will. <laughs> Give it a listen. If you've never listened to Paul Washer before, yeah, consider giving it a listen. Uh, listen. Um, just be prepared. It's not Rick Warren. Um, it's not Joel Osteen, but it'll be good for you. So that's all we got. Um, yeah, maybe coming back talking about youth ministry next week. Um, but again, we'll see what happens. We'll be back on Monday with our daily devotionals. So please go check those out. Like, subscribe if you haven't. If you're on the podcast, consider following, leaving us a nice review. We would certainly appreciate that. But until next time, God bless. Save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Save big money.